Good morning. You can open up your Bibles to the book of 1 John. 1 John. And today we're going to be taking a one-week break from our study through the Gospel of John. Um, But we aren't going to go very far, at least in regards to the author. Um, This morning we're going to study a small passage in the letter of 1 John, which was written by the very same John who wrote the fourth gospel. And so I thought it would be beneficial to hear from John in another setting from what we've been hearing him in his gospel. This letter was written some 60 years after our Lord's death and resurrection. But I find it neat, especially having been in such an in-depth study of the gospel of John, to think that, that this man, the same man, John now is an elderly pastor who has deep concerns for a a young congregation that he loves, whom he loves. And that is what we we have in 1 John. We see John the pastor. John demonstrating great pastoral love for Christians, for the children of God. that That they wouldn't be deceived by the false teaching of his day and living in sin, and that they would be encouraged in their faith and, and reminded of their dependence upon Christ in this life. So today, again, we're going to study 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, where John gives a, a command to this congregation, one that is very timely in all generations including our own. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The Word of God says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So do not love the world. Sounds simple, right? This command from the the Apostle John may be a bit more complicated than it first appears. I think this can be illustrated just with a few questions. So what exactly does John mean by loving the world? I thought God actually loves the world. Doesn't John 3.16, the, the most famous verse in the whole Bible, say, For God so loved the world? So how can I, as a Christian be called to not love something that God directly loves. Also, what about the the glories of God's wonderful creation? In John's command, he he says that we are not to love the world or or the things in the world. Does that mean I can't all enjoy all the wonderful things in creation? Sunsets, beautiful music, freshly brewed coffee in the morning? Baseball, or the best thing, brisket, smoked probably in central Texas. So I think there's a a danger in a passage like this, 
which is by no means hard to understand grammatically or, or linguistically what John is doing. It's not a complicated passage as far as the language is using, but there's a danger to misunderstand and therefore misapply what John is intending for us. And the danger is to define not loving the world in such a way that is either overly burdensome for Christians, that would call for Christians to not enjoy the, the good things in our life and God's creation, or the, the other ditch that kind of just neuters the command of any ethical implications for Christians, because in this view, John can't possibly be meaning we have to hate everything in the world, so we don't have to hate anything that we don't want to. So today, we want to avoid both errors. And to do so, I want to break down our time by, by answering really two main questions that develop from this text and that John answers for us. And these are going to serve as our, our main points. So the first is, what is the world? What is the world that John is talking about here? And then second, why shouldn't we love this world? Why shouldn't we love this world? So first, what is the world? What is the world? Now the reason this question has, can be difficult for Christians to answer is that at times the word world can mean different things in different contexts, obviously. Even with, with the same writer, like John. So let's just, just first look at the immediate context of our passage. John is starting in verse 12 to... Um, and, and gives the recipients of this letter reasons for his writing them. And what we find in verses 12 through 14 is, is some wonderful, wonderful words of encouragement for these Christians and for us if we are in Christ. John tells them multiple encouraging theological truths that are meant to, to encourage them amidst the, the false uh, teaching they're experiencing and their congregation, and their church. He tells them their, their sins are forgiven. That they, that they know the Father. They know the Son. He tells them that they're, they're strong, and the Word of God abides in them. And that they have, they have overcome the evil one. They have overcome the devil. So this is this glorious hope for the Christian in verses 12 through 14. But it's that last encouragement that I think can provide us a pretty big clue of what John is meaning by his use of the word world here. Overcoming the devil, the evil one. So one way that John uses the word world is in the positive sense. What we see in a place like we've already mentioned in John 3.16. In that sense of the word, world means something like humanity. So we could say, for God so loved the, the humans of the world. I think pretty obviously this is not what John is referring to in our text, which means our text this morning is not ex an excuse to, to not show love to that neighbor who's particularly difficult for you. Christians are called to love the world in this sense, in the sense that the world means the humanity that makes up the world. But John also uses the word to mean something like 
the dominion of Satan or, or the systems and ideologies of the world that are characteristic of the evil one and his rule in this age. The commentator John Stott puts it like this, the world for John in this text is an inclusive term for all those who are in the kingdom of darkness and have not been born of God, who are in the kingdom of darkness and not yet been born of God. So this is how just like the the passage um, Seth just read, Jesus can characterize the church, uh, Christians, as being in the world, but not of the world. We exist in this realm where where Satan is, is the prince of this world, and in that way, we, we are not of this world because we are of the Father. We are of God. We are citizens of a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. And that is why, just like our passage this morning, we see the world and the church as being portrayed in, in this sharp contrast to each other. Stott would say that there are two entirely distinct groups of people, one under the dominion of Satan the other born of God and knowing God as Father. And it is in this sense of the word world that we are to understand John's command not to love this world. We are to not love, which by love, John is meaning what, what, what we set our affections on, what we, what we put, set our devotion on what we sacrifice our time, our, our resources, uh, our life on, what controls our life. We are not to, to love, to set our affections on the realm of Satan and his wicked schemes and devices. We get actually, I think, a, a greater clue. This is what John is intending if we, if we look down at verse 16 in our chapter. Notice there John is giving the the reason why Christians aren't to to love the world. And he says, because all that is in the world. And then he gives three descriptions of what he means by that. Just very helpful to us as readers as we're putting together what he's intending. So notice he says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So it will serve us well if we get a, a little more detail of what each of these phrases means as we round out our understanding of, of what John means by the word world. So what John is doing with these three phrases is giving three distinguishing marks of what characterize the non-believing world. Or you could say the, the pagan world. And therefore, under the, the sway of the devil. So the first phrase, the, the desires of the flesh, has a relatively broad meaning of just the, the desire of our fallen and sinful nature. With a, a particular emphasis, I think, on, on the cravings of the physical body. So this can be applied widely. To, to unrestrained um, sexual pleasure or, or slothfulness, laziness, the desire to, to control others for the sake of our own personal gratification. And the list can go 
obviously go on and on because sin is vast. But the point is there are sinful desires that come from within wicked man. Those cravings that are innate to our flesh, to our, to our sinful disposition. And the striking thing is we live in a culture presently that, that celebrates many of these desires of the flesh as virtuous things, as even virtuous lifestyles under the banner of authenticity or being true to oneself. And we didn't understand that is not a good place to be because the call of the text is, is quite clear. The Christian must not love the desire of the flesh, the cravings of our sinful nature, let alone make our whole identity out of them. So the next phrase, the, the desire of the eyes, this one is probably the most straightforward. We know from, from just looking at the teaching of Jesus that our eyes play a big role in life. Think of Matthew 6.23. It says that if, you're, if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Also, blindness is, is often a metaphor for, for spiritual deadness. Right? It denotes rebellion against God and His law. And on the, the flip side, reception of sight is a symbol for, for regeneration or, or new birth in the New Testament. But it's obvious right, that the eyes can serve evil ends. Just think of the story of, of David and Bathsheba. He looked upon her nakedness and lusted in his heart. So when John says the the, the desire of the eyes, he's referring to those sinful things outside of ourself that tempt us to, to capture our vision. Sinful things that we, we know we should not be gazing on, that are not from the Lord. Those things of the world that, that captivate our evil hearts and our sinful desires of our flesh. I think the obvious example of our day would be just Sexually explicit content, which is just rampant everywhere in our culture. You can't even drive down the interstate without seeing a billboard that is attempting to appeal to this desire of your eyes in this way. Let alone the access we have all on our TVs and phones. It's, it's rampant and everywhere. But I think it would be mistaken to take this phrase to only refer to those desires... The desire of the eyes can be any form of godless activity that is appealing to our flesh. It could be your, your eyes desiring to see violence and death in a very unhealthy way. Or, or even lavish, prideful luxury. You just, you're, it satisfies the cravings of your eyes to see those expensive items. And we Christians, right, the call is we Christians can't set our affections, our love, on those wicked desires that, that characterize the world out there. All of the images and things that are, capture, are, are setting to capture our vision. The final phrase is, is notoriously the, the most difficult to interpret. The, the ESV renders it the, the pride of life. The pride of life. I think the, the best interpretation of this phrase is, is pride in one's 
own material possessions or abilities. So with the, with the idea of being boastful about what you own or what you have. Or being pretentious and arrogant regarding your, your external circumstances. Whether that is wealth or rank in the society, athletic ability, or even dress or beauty. One commentator put it like this, the, the pride of life is the desire to shine or outshine others in luxurious living. But I don't think the phrase is just referring to the, the glamorous possessions of those people down the street that we don't have. Because really anything people work to acquire can be something you grow proud of, prideful of. The, the vain pursuit of earthly goods is a temptation for all of us. But the point is that the sinful world is characterized by an arrogant pride in things, in material things, in abilities. And we know just theologically the, the pride present in our own material possessions or giftings is misguided, right? Because everything we have is a gift from God. And what characterizes the sinful world to, to John in this text is, is people that reject their creator, that, that reject their God and become proud of what they think they've attained through their own power, through their own intellect, through their own savvy. That is what John is saying we must not love as Christians, that we must reject and what characterizes the world. So the long answer, long answer of what John means by, by world in this text is the world is the domain of Satan and characterized by, by human sinful desires and the desires of the eyes that, that please our sinful cravings and sinful pride in material possessions and, and natural abilities. And what is striking is just how prevalent all these are in our day and age. Just turn, turn on the TV and, and watch a few commercials. Actually, don't do that. But it shouldn't surprise us too much when we think about it because what the body desires and the eyes itch for and being sinfully proud, what, what we work to acquire are what has and always will characterize the sinful world. whether that was in the, the Old Testament, the New Testament, 1950, or today. This is the nature of the world we live in. And the call then is that we must not set our affections, we must not love these things that characterize the world as Christians. John is saying, as a Christian, as one that is forgiven, one that is redeemed from Sin, one that is in relationship with the Father, one that has overcome Satan himself. As one like that, you can't give your time, your energy, your passions to the wicked things of this world. And John helpfully gives us reasons to why we can't love the world. Which leads to our, our second question to answer. Why shouldn't we love this world? Why shouldn't we love this world? 
So with, with the word world properly defined for us, let's go back to verse 15 for a moment, where John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that is a powerful statement. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So what John is doing here is giving a statement of potentiality. So we could say it, I think, like this. If one were to love the world, then the love of the Father would not be in him, in that one. And so this is really the the first answer to the question of why we shouldn't love this world. Because if we do, if we do set our affections on the sinful domain of Satan... then we reject God and His love will not be in us. And this should make sense to us when we think about God and and who He is. God requires total devotion and total allegiance to Him. Just think back to our Old Testament. We see that God is a, a jealous God who wants the Israelites' full worship to be for Him alone. He wants their their full devotion and not the other gods of the peoples. And the same is true for us today. God does not allow for any pagan worship, any side worship of false things. He requires full devotion. Another way to think about this is that there, there can be no rival loves to God in the believer's life. The point John is making here in verse 15 is that you can't have love for the world or or the sinful things of this world and also have love for God. It just doesn't work that way. It's an impossibility. And I think we need to see in a temptation that, that we all face is that we can't even have a little of this worldly godlessness and have God at the same time. We can't say, yeah, I'm, I'm fully devoted to God and He's the Lord over my life and still let unrestrained sinful desires rule our lives. Or let your sinful desires to be what you identify as or become proud of your earthly possessions. Not even on a small scale. The Lord wants full devotion. Think of the Israelites said something like, Okay, God, let's make a deal. We'll, we'll worship you alone, but we just want a little golden calf worship, just, just, just a small amount. Or at least we want to share some, some pro-golden calf images on social media to show that we're tolerant of our pagan neighbors. No, that's a terrible, terrible idea. God will not allow for that. And the same is true for us. We can't have one foot in the sinful kingdom of Satan and one foot in the kingdom of God. It's a very dangerous place to be. So one of the the big reasons we can't love the world as those that are in Christ is because we can't both love or or be fully devoted to God and something else. Again, it just doesn't work that way. And we know this, right? We know this experientially. How many non-believers do you know that from an earthly perspective refuse to repent and trust in Jesus because of their love for their 
sinful lifestyle because of their love for wickedness, their devotion to wickedness. It is tragically sad reality in this world. In verse 16, we see another helpful sentence of explanation. It reads for... It reads for, or you could translate it because, which I think ties it back for us to verse 15. So read together it would be, Do not love the world or the things in this world, because all that is in this world is not from the Father, but is from the world. So it's another phrase that can be tricky to pin down the exact meaning of what John is saying. But most, the majority of commentators agree that the idea John is communicating is that what characterizes the sinful world, so all those phrases we talked about through um, in verse 16, all of that is not from the Father in that it is hostile to God or, or it's, it's opposed to God. So those sinful characteristics do not flow from the Father and His, and His perfect righteous character. Right, the sinful world is a, is a distortion and really a, a horror show of God's good design. In that way, it's, it's not from the Father. It's not from God. And this is really the main ground of the passage or the, the main reason for John that Christians shouldn't love this world. Because what characterizes this world stands in fundamental hostility to our King and to our Father. So we should, as his followers, as his children, should want no part of it. Because he can have no part of it. Our God can have no part of it. Think for a second about an earthly father. And let's say he is allergic to peanuts, deathly allergic, and he can't be around them. But every time his adult son comes home, he brings peanuts with him. And the father can't be around the peanuts, and therefore, right, he can't be around the son unless the son leaves the peanuts. So this kind of gets to the idea that John is arguing in verses 15 and 16. God can't tolerate worldliness because it's fundamentally hostile to him. It is opposed to him. It's not of him. So obviously the, the solution in this illustration of the father and son is simple. Right? The son just needs to drop his peanut habit when he's around his dad. But our fight is much tougher against the world, isn't it? Because the world and its sinful desires is not just some passive thing. It, it, it's, it's not just some inanimate object. One commentator put it like this, the world is not a passive entity but a rival for the allegiance of every person. A rival for the allegiance of every person. The domain of the devil, the world as described in this text, is standing opposed to you, believer, right now. Because the world and its sinful desires stand opposed to our Father. And that is why, the, the, the main reason why we can't set our affections or give any inkling of our lives to the wickedness in this world. And listen, I'm not going to give you, stand up here and give you a list 
of what you can and can't do or can and can't drink or what you spend your money on as a prescription for you, although there's definitely things no Christian should watch or do. But the general principle I want to apply is that we need to recognize how serious the fight is we are in as Christians. It's so easy to lose focus in this fight. It's such a dangerous temptation we all face. Because we exist, we live in a world that stands opposed to our Father and His ways, and therefore stands opposed to us. And the enemy, the devil, wants to destroy us. He wants to wreck our lives. He wants to wreck our faith. And so I think a simple application of this text is to recognize the enemy, Satan, the world and our flesh. They, they, they all work together to, to try to steal and take our devotion away from the Lord. So the command not to love the world is not just some passive thing that we do, that we decide to do. Like, we, we, we wake up and we say, okay, God, today I'm not going to love the world. Check. I, I fixed that situation. No, we should set up our lives in such a way that eliminates potential stumbling blocks for our full devotion to the Lord. Because the arena of our life is in hostility to the things of the Lord. And that means eliminating things that, that tempt us to set our affections on sinful things, on the sinful things that characterize this world. And that can be a lot of different things. And it will probably look differently for every one of us who are in Christ. But the, the call is still the same for each of us. To not love the world because the things of this world stand in hostility to our God. They are not of Him. John gives another final reason why we shouldn't love the world. It's found in verse 17. It reads, And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I really like this verse. I like all the verses, but I really like this verse. John gives just a very wise, pragmatic reason why we shouldn't love the world. And it's quite simple. Are you ready? This reason is because it's pointless. It's pointless. This is a theme that John has articulated in other parts of this letter and in his gospel, that the world and everything in it that characterizes the world is transient. It's, it's fleeting. It's passing away. It's not going to remain forever. So the point John is making here is that we shouldn't love the world because the world isn't going to last. It will not last into eternity. In fact, we know that this side of the, the cross and, and resurrection and ascension of our Lord, that a new age has been inaugurated. A new kingdom has come. In this present age, this, this kingdom of darkness of this world is going to soon pass away. That is the theological truth John is rooting his command to not love the world in. Which really, I think, just shows for us John's 
pastoral heart and his pastoral wisdom to this young congregation he's writing to. You could think of it like this. He's saying, beloved, brothers and sisters, remember that, that everything that seems so permanent, so lasting in the world, in actuality, is passing away. So we Christians, I think we need to take this and remember, especially in our moments of temptation of running towards the world, running towards our sinful desires. We need to remember that, that no matter how much sin feels right or, or how much it even makes sense in the moment or whatever excuse we, we muster up, we need to remember giving into to the sin of this world is ultimately futile. It's meaningless. It won't last. It won't ever deliver on what it promises. In fact, it will pass away. But it's important to remember, it won't pass away into nothingness. We know that the devil and his wicked dominion will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And those that give their devotion, those that give their allegiance to his kingdom, to this temporal world, will, fast, will face the exact same punishment. Eternal, agonizing punishment facing the just wrath of a holy God. It's a sober warning that I think we must be reminded of frequently as Christians. But John ends with this, this great note of encouragement. He says at the end of verse 17, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So in, instead of loving the world and passing away into eternal destruction, the implication of this verse is that we need to be doing the will of God because it abides forever. That just means it, it will remain forever. Obviously, John is putting the, the will and work of God in contrast to the, to the work and characteristics of this passing world. So what does it mean to do the will of God? What does it mean to do the will of God in this verse? I don't think this is too complicated, or we should make this out into something more than it actually is. To do the will of God is simply to do what He commands on our life. To do what He commands in our life. To love God and to love neighbor. It's not some mystic formula that we have to try to figure out every day what is the will of God. It is to obey His commandments in our life. But just think about for a second what this means. When you choose to run from sin and you choose to set up your life in such a way that seeks to eliminate the influence of this world in your life, in your family's life, and when you, in return, you, you, you submit yourself under God's word fully, you, you, you begin to pray to God consistently, you, you serve your fellow church members, you, you evangelize to your lost friends and family. You come to worship the Lord here every week and sit under the word preached. When you do these things, 
you're truly participating in what actually matters and what will last through eternity. So Christian, remember when it seems like the, the natural disciplines of the Christian life, when they seem futile, when they seem pointless, when they seem like they're not working, and the allures of this world are, are actually what seem to be the most real, the most important, the most lasting. We need to remember it's simply not true. It is objectively false. This world will pass away in all of its sin. It will happen. And those who obey the Lord and submit their life under His word will remain forever, will abide forever. So I think this, it's, we should be encouraged, right, to press on in doing what the Lord's calling on our lives. Obedience and submission to Him above any earthly power. Because in the end, when all things come to pass, it will be supremely worth it. And that is an understatement. It will be totally worth it. So brothers and sisters, do not love the world. A simple command, right? Do not love the world. That has eternal significance. Eternal significance for each of us in here. So may we be a people that takes seriously this command from God's word. May we be a people that is marked by our, our distance from the wickedness that is characteristic of this world and hostile towards our Father. May we not give, in our, not give our, our affections, our devotion to what is fleeting, to what is temporary. Rather, may we resolve to do the will of our Father, to obey Him and give our lives to what will last forever. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for you and your word and that it will not perish or fade away, but it will last forever. And so we ask this morning that, that you would mark us as a people, each of us in our individual lives as being marked as fully devoted to you. Lord, even now we, we, we would ask that you would bring to mind any, any areas of our life where we are slipping into devotion, giving some parts of our allegiance to the world and its wickedness. And we do pray that you would not let us stay there, but convict us in our heart and grant us repentance. Cause us to turn away from, from our full devotion of you and to, and to fully commit our lives and submit our lives under you. We're so thankful for Christ and what he has done for us. that through faith in, in Him we can be made to be forgiven and, and redeemed and to be in right relationship with You as a Father. And so this morning as Your children, we, we offer You our praise and, and worship as our Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.